Tonight we'll start off by finishing up Genesis chapter 21. Anybody in here ever have a tough time balancing the law and grace? It's tough. It's difficult at times to understand how both those things exist in the mind of a sovereign God perfectly, and yet they do. Anybody in here have a tough time sometimes figuring out how God's provision and his promises work together? Yeah, I raised my hand for that one too. We, we know that he loves us. And we know that he has promised that his children will never beg for bread. We know that uh, he knows what we have need of before we even do. He, he knows that he's made these promises to provide for us uh, as his kids. And yet sometimes we feel like mm, maybe it didn't quite work out just exactly the way he wanted it to. And yet when we get to heaven, we're going to see that his promises and his provision match up perfectly. But while we're here, we sometimes struggle with these opposing concepts. The grace of God and the law of God, the promises of God, and yet the daily provision of God don't seem to sometimes match up. Why do good people suffer? Anybody got an answer for that one? We'll do that one later. Why do people who love the Lord get sick and die of cancer? You know, we have these opposing things that we face every single moment of every day that in the mind of God, he is perfect at balancing. And not the least of those is this, this guy that I kind of feel some sorrow towards named Ishmael. Here's this young man who's brought into the world by no doing of his own. He didn't get to pick his parents, amen? He's got Abraham, the knucklehead father, and he's got Hagar, the woman who, you know, kind of comes into this situation, you know, not in an ideal way. And so we look at Ishmael and we kind of say, you know, Lord, are you being fair? Are you really being kind? Are you being just? And so tonight, a law and grace, provision and promise. And we'll finish up from verse 9. Uh, all the way down to verse 34, and we'll finish chapter 21 here in the book of Genesis. Would you join me and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time tonight, first in your word, before we turn our attention to asking those questions that are on people's minds. And God, we ask that we would give great attention, Lord, to your word. Help us to understand and know uh, the balance in these things, Lord, the law, where it fits with your grace and your provision in our daily lives according to your promises, which are eternal. And so we thank you that you have balanced perfectly. Help us to understand that balance in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 9, and this is really continuing from last time because it sets the stage going forward. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. She, she noticed that there was something going on in the character of this child who's now a teenager, irregardless of what you saw maybe in Sunday school on a flannel graph. Uh, by this time, Ishmael likely was a teenager, 14 years, 15 years old, uh, maybe more. Uh, but he's beginning to be a young man in, in that culture. And at that time, he would have already been considered really uh, well on his way to adulthood. And so, therefore, she said to Abraham, cast out this bondwoman and her son, 
For the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely Isaac. And the matter was very displeasing in Abraham's sight because of his son. And so Abraham really has a tender heart. He's got a heart much like David's heart and a heart much like God's heart. He sees what's going on in Ishmael's life realizes that he hasn't had a perfect upbringing, a perfect beginning, uh, that he's somewhat responsible for it. If you're a parent in here, and please don't raise your hand, you can probably all identify with, uh, you, you, you will to do something very well for your children, and maybe in the implementation of that desire, you didn't quite make the goal that you set for yourself. You stumbled a little bit. Maybe there was, there was an issue of upbringing, something that you wanted to maybe leave out uh, if you're uh, a believer here tonight and you walk with the Lord for any time I think most of us can look back and about the last thing we want to do is pass on our bad habits to our kids amen it could be some little thing that's just in your life that you, you 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 intend to make sure your children don't pick that up uh, and yet you find that somehow you still ended up modeling the very thing that you set out uh, to, to remove from your family's existence. And so that is a picture of what happens here in Abraham's life. He repeats the same mistakes several times. Uh, and during his teenage years, some of those mistakes come out in the life of Ishmael. He ends up a scoffer. He ends up cynical. Uh, how many of our children end up cynical because we're cynical? Uh, how many of our children end up with a little bit of a snide personality because we have a little bit of a snide personality? Maybe it's worse than that. Maybe they have a tough time telling the truth because we don't tell the truth. Maybe they're engaged in some sinful behavior because they learned it at home. And so Abraham recognizes that he has some responsibility in this. Though this is Ishmael's sin... It is Ishmael that's, that's doing this. The stage was set really in the home. And so Abraham has that clearly in view. Uh, he'd seen his father live godly and he'd heard the wonderful stories, but he'd also seen his father also mock God and do exactly the wrong thing. So again, be careful about the little areas of compromise that you allow into your life uh, because your children will pick those things up. And though he was brought up in a godly home, compromise is going to creep into Ishmael's life, and we're going to see that as we move forward. So let's finish the chapter now. It's a, it forms a unified story, verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for Isaac your seed shall be called. And God's kind of setting the stage here for what's going to happen going forward. And yet I will also make a nation out of the son of the bondwoman because he's your seed. Remember that the promise has been made. Uh, and so God can't go back on it. God has to keep his promises. God cannot renege on the things that he said. That's why sometimes when people will talk to me about things that are in the Old Testament that involve God's moral law or his character, they say that doesn't any longer apply. I will usually say something like, well, then he owes Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. Because if he now accepts what he didn't accept then, then he's actually changed his character. 
and he changes not, says the Lord. So he has to have the same moral character in Genesis chapter 2 as he begins to deal with Adam and Eve as he has today. He cannot change. It's an impossibility for God. He's not like us. He doesn't situationally look at something and decide that, okay, well, modern day morals and ethics are this. They're thus and so. We've become you know, more in tune with our humanness, and so consequently we know better. No, God knew better from the beginning, and he was perfect from the beginning. He remains perfect today, and so whatever he thought then, he thinks now with regard to character, with regard to morality, how we relate to him and his laws. He did alter by the cross, but the perfect standard, still the perfect standard. The righteousness is absolute, And so he says, because of your seed, which I promised, I'm going to make it good with Ishmael as well. And so Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and put it on her shoulder and he gave it and the boy to to Hagar and sent her away. And remember that that day and time, children were, were kind of treated like property. Again, we don't understand that. It wasn't that God was asking them to be diminished, but it's like, you know, here's your child. This is yours. And so she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Beersheba is a city that still exists today, uh, south and west of Jerusalem. Uh, The name means the the well of the oath or seven wells. And so it is still that name today. And in fact, there is an archaeological dig that's there uh, that they've uncovered seven wells. And so the, the city of Beersheba, uh, is is this city not far from the coast of the Mediterranean, just inland about uh, 20 miles or so. And the water in the skin was used up, but it is also called the capital of the Negev. So it is the, it's kind of like the, the garden spot, if you will, of one of the world's most ferocious deserts. And so here's this little Settlement, which at the time would have been very, very tiny. And in fact, the archaeological dig is just a single hill. And there are wells surrounding it and a little water course that runs through uh, a small canyon to the north of it. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water in the skin was used up and she placed the boy under one of the shrubs. And then she went and sat down across from him at a distance about a bow shot you know, maybe 150 yards at the very most. And she said to herself, let me not see the death of the boy. You can see her despair. She's wondering, you know, what have I done? Where am I going? Has God misplaced my life, my son's life? Does he not see us? And she sat opposite of him and lifted up her voice and wept. This is a, a grieving heart of a mom. And I want you to see God's response. If you've ever wondered, even when you have caused things in your life, when you've been responsible for the situation that you're in, make no mistake, God still hears your cry. He's waiting for the right words to come from your lips, from your heart. And those words are, I'm sorry, God. But he hears. And God heard the voice of the lad. And then the angel of God called to Hagar out of, out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? 
Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise and lift up the lad and hold him up with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Repeats again the promise. And then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. And so God was with the lad and he grew and he dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. And he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took took him uh, out, took a wife for him in the land of Egypt. And so she, she goes back to where she's come from, goes back to her own people. And it came to pass at that time that Abimelech and Pichol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abram saying, God is with you in all that you do. And now therefore swear to me by God that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, that you will do to me and to the land in which you have dwelt. And Abraham said, I swear. And Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of the well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. Again, remember that Abraham has this, this battle these warring factions, if you will, uh, always fought over water, fought over trade routes. Those are the key things in this region. If you ever have the opportunity to go with us uh, and you see exactly how desolate and how barren the Negev is, uh, water is the most valuable thing in the desert. Uh, You can go many, many, many days, some people as much as maybe 30 days, Without food, most people at least a week, a week and a half. Uh, but you can only go about maybe three days if you're really strong without water. And then you are dead. So water was a big deal. And people battled over it. We think about it, it's kind of like, well, I just go to the tap and go to somebody else's house and get some more water. If you ever looked at the Colorado River aqueduct coming down from the eastern Sierra, you realize the water we have here. Don't come from here. A matter of fact, in the 1940s, there was an uprising over the water that was being diverted that used to go into Mono Lake from all the eastern Sierra tributaries north of Mammoth. And finally, the people who farmed in that region just decided one day they'd just blow up the aqueduct. And they cut off the water to Southern California. And there's a handful of them, millions of people without water. Water is a big deal. It was a big deal then. And God says, look, I'll take care of you, but you do what I tell you to do. And so Abimelech said, I I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, nor have I heard it until today. And so Abraham took sheep and oxen and, and gave them to Abimelech. And the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven you lambs of the flock by themselves. So again, seven springs, seven wells, the oath. These are all the same names that were named here in the book of Genesis. And Mimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven you lambs which you have set by themselves? He said, you will take these seven you lambs from my hand that they may be my witness that I have dug this well. And therefore he called the place Beersheba. Because the two of them had swore an oath there. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba, so that Abimelech rose and with Pictol, 
the commander of his army, and they returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God, and Abraham stayed in the land of the Philistines for many days. So the first thing that we see here is Sarah and Hagar, we see this contrast between the law of God and the grace of God. Look, Sarah was wrong when she told Abraham to marry Hagar. It's that simple. There's no getting around it. This was an accommodation made for both Sarah's flesh and Abraham's flesh. There was nothing right about it. But God redeems our mistakes, doesn't he? Aren't you glad that God's grace reaches across your mistakes and somehow he works all things together for the good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. His grace is greater than all my sin. His grace has the capacity to cover anything that I can mess up, God can fix. Now in saying that, we don't sin so that we can magnify the grace of God. Paul made this case. He said, what then? Should I go on sinning that the grace might abound? And then he answers his own question and says, of course you shouldn't. Certainly not. But he would go on to say there in chapter 7 of the book of Romans, he says these things that I will to do, I I don't do those things. I know what to do, but I don't do it. Anybody have that problem? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) You know what to do, but you don't do it. Your flesh gets in the way. Your emotions get in the way. Sin gets in the way. The devil gets in the way. You know what to do, but you don't do it. Aren't you glad for the grace of God? Amen? Were it not for his grace, we would all perish. Just saying. I'm glad I'm saved by grace and not by works. I can do a lot of works. I'm I'm fairly gifted at being worky. I can figure out how to get stuff done, so to speak but I could never do enough to earn my salvation. I'd always fall short. And so God here gives us this incredible picture of his grace covering the sin of Sarah. And the sin of Sarah and the sin of Abraham affects another family, which is now this handmaiden, Hagar, and her son Ishmael. And yes, there was compromise involved. And yes, it was time for Hagar to leave with Ishmael. There was was going to be serious conflict within their home. Uh, And so we'll look at a few things with that regard towards the end of our study time tonight. Compromise always brings those types of consequences. Anybody ever found, and again, I'm not asking you to raise your hand. I'm asking you as a question, a, a matter of questioning to you. Have any of you ever ended up in circumstances that you never thought you'd be in because there was some form of compromise that led from one compromise to another compromise to another compromise to yet an even worse compromise? And again, don't raise your hand. But that's what happens, isn't it? You make a little compromise over here. It's a little lie. There's a little untruth. And that little untruth, in order to guard that so that you don't look like you're a liar, you you tell another lie. And then that lie, you need to actually validate the lie. So now you take an action and, and you do it because it validates the lie and then the action is also sin. 
And then in order that that sin not be found out, you do something else that validates the fact, oh, well, this is okay too. And before you know it, you went from this little tiny thing to where you just fudged on the truth a little bit to your Robin Banks. <laughs> Maybe not quite that far, but you know what I'm saying. It's what compromise does in the life of a believer. And so don't buy the, the lie of the enemy. Oh, it's just a little lie. Or it's only a little lust. Or it's only a tiny bit of thievery. I, you know, actually, I'm owed these things because my boss is a creep. And yes, I've had people say that to me. <laughs> Pastor Jeff, is it okay to take stuff from my office? Because I don't get paid enough. I've had people ask me that question. Well-meaning, well-intentioned people who love the Lord. It's a little bit of compromise. I'm not sure you're going to hell because of erasers, but (laughs) give them back. Don't compromise. It never works out well. The Apostle Paul actually sees this whole event as an allegory, and you can read it later in Galatians chapter 4. But he uses this exact story, and he says this in verse 21 of Galatians chapter 4. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For as it was written, Abraham had two sons, one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. And he goes on to explain this, and he says, look, this this is what happens. If you want to be under bondage, then try and fulfill the law. And this is the area that I, I always get into conversations with people. There, there's no end to legalism. There's no end to the law. And so Paul would go on to say, look, the, the law is simply a tutor. It's a schoolmaster that leads us unto Christ. It brings us to grace because you can't fulfill the law. It's an impossibility. And here's why I say that. Even if you kept the law itself perfectly, the necessary pride and self-accomplishment would be sin in and of itself. And so you're over here, yes, I keep the law. You know, you'd just be like so high and lifted up and mighty and like, I am a law keeper. And thereby, you would be outside of the law of God. Because the God that you would have would not be the true and the living God. The God would be you keeping the law. And so be careful. The law is a dead end. And so people say, well, let's throw the law out. That's their response. No, 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 no. It doesn't quite work that way either. It's where grace comes in. Because grace always points us back to the law. It says, look, this is how you ought to live. These are the righteous requirements. They're good. They're just. But because you can't keep them, you need the grace of God to balance out the law of God. Because you'll never be able to keep it effectively. We live under the blessing of grace. We don't live under the bondage of the law. Praise God. Amen. I mean, think about it. Thou shall not covet. We're all dead. We're all dead. Every last one of us. 
There isn't a person in this room who's not desired to have somebody else's something at some time. There isn't. There's not one of us in here to where you're like, man, I wish I had that. I was driving down PCH and we pull into the parking lot. We're going to go, we're going to the movies and we're, we're pulling out and there goes a Lamborghini and we're pulling in and there's a Ferrari and I'm stuck between two covetousnesses. I don't know which one to covet more. I could think the Lamborghini's faster. Okay, you, know, you, you know what I'm saying? We all have our little things. And so God is speaking to us. Man, be careful about attaching yourself to the law without recognizing you need grace to fulfill it. You need the grace of God to fulfill the law of God. And the only way that happens is with the love of God. There's some lessons we can learn from Hagar. Hagar was Abraham's second wife. That was not God's plan. And and she was in that sense added alongside of Sarah. You can never add the law of God to the grace of God. It doesn't work. See, you always have to go with the firstborn. And we're firstborn by grace. We're not firstborn by the law. And so we have this picture that Paul actually writes about in Galatians chapter 3. And so in looking at, at Hagar's place in all of this, Paul would say, what does the purpose of the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, he goes on to say. The reason we need the law in the first place is because we're sinners. The law is for the guilty. The law only helps the guilty understand they're guilty. The law doesn't do anything for the person who's under grace. It can't save. It can only direct you back to the fact that you need grace. And so she was the second wife. God wanted Abraham to have one. God didn't start with the law. He started with grace. Get this, family. People often say, well, the law came first. Did it really? I point you to Genesis chapter 2, and you tell me whether the law of God came first or grace came first. What was God's response to Adam and Eve's sin? He didn't hand them any tablets, just telling you. Like here, figure it out for yourself. Got some rocks for you. Got 10 things in here. Don't ever do that again. Oh, what does he do? Innocent animal has to die. The blood of the innocent is shed for the guilty. We call that G-R-A-C-E, grace. Amen? So it was grace first. It was not the law first. The law came later. The law came because people wouldn't walk in grace. And so God brings the law. He says, I want you to know how wicked you are. I'm going to give you 10 things. And here's what's going to happen. You're going to get to number one and go, oh, no, I need grace. (laughs) Right? Thou shalt have no other gods before me. No Lambos, no Ferraris, no nice houses in PV, no people wanting to, you know, get to know you. 
you see, we need desperately the grace of God. Hagar was a, a servant. She was a slave under the law. But grace doesn't serve the law. The law serves grace. It's always been that way. Grace is always first. All the law does is just simply reveal the need that we have for the grace of God. You know, when I look at at the role of the law in my own life, and I delight in the law of the Lord. It's what your Bible says we're supposed to do. But I delight for some very strange reasons. I delight in the law of the Lord and I go, oh, God, thank you for grace. I delight that the law is perfect and your ways are just and upright. I look at those things and I go, man, God, you had it right the first time. The only problem is I can't keep that. I want to, but my flesh is weak and the enemy's powerful. And though I try my very best, I always come up just a little bit short. And that's where God's grace covers my sin. Covers my own desire to do good but not doing it. And again, that's not an excuse to sin. That's the necessity of your humanness being taken care of by something that God did for you that you don't deserve. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourself is a gift of God and none of us can boast. Amen? You see... The law still is perfect and the law still is good and the law still is the standard. The problem is, without grace, you're not getting there. And so God puts grace in our lives and we see that in the life of Hagar and Abraham. I tell you a little secret, Hagar was never supposed to bear Abraham a child. That wasn't supposed to happen. Yeah, that was... That was a combination of Abraham and Sarah trying to help God out. And I'm going to tell you, God doesn't need your help either. He doesn't need you to conjole or try and tweak the law to make it palatable. He just needs you to do what it says. And you're going to need grace to help you do that. And that's why the law leads to deadness. The law always leads to deadness. All that happens when I recognize the fullness of the law's command is I go, I'm dead. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins and I need the Lord. And as you might expect, Hagar then gives birth to another slave. You see, if you're in slavery, you can only bear more slaves. Someone that's in bondage brings other people into bondage is another way to look at it. When you have someone who doesn't know the freedom of grace, they walk in bondage and they bring other people into their bondage. And so now they're wandering around. Now you have two people that are in bondage. A fifth thing. That's very sad. Because the law will separate you. Hagar is cast out. She's separated from love. The law always separates you out. The law will call out every last person in this room. There's not one person that's going to stand here before a holy God with the law as the example and say, wow, the law is going to draw me in. No, there's going to be something in the law that's going to push you away from God. You don't meet that criteria right there. The law always separates. 
That's why you need grace. And finally, Hagar never married again. There's no love in the law. There's no love in it. The law is brutal. It's pointed. It demands. It it calls out to you and says, this is how you got to live. And then you can't keep it. And so all that you feel is defeat. You don't feel loved. And again, that's why the grace of God transcends the law of God. And so in that sense, love fulfills the law. Because there is a lawful use of it. There's a reason. Paul affirms that. Actually, 1 Timothy chapter 1 describes that. And there in verse 8, it says this, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Our problem is using it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and the insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy, the profane, the murderers of fathers, the murderers of mothers, for manslayers. You get the picture. Law keeps people who are evil in check. It still does that today. I can prove that to you. If you don't break the law, you're not going to have any trouble with law enforcement in a general sense. Most of the time. Now, in a very perfect sense, when God says the law is for the unlawful, he's trying to tell them, look, you have a problem with me. Not so he can condemn you, but so that you can come to the conclusion you need his love. You need his grace. And so the law is for the lawless. It causes us to see exactly how messed up we are. And when I look at the law of God, I go, whoa, I'm in trouble. And so I cry out for his grace. It's these beautiful Old Testament examples of how God deals with us today under the new covenant. They were here in the Old Testament. They were here for Abraham and Sarah. They would have understood very clearly the grace of God. Finally, as we wrap this up, you can see God and and Hagar interacting and this promise and provision that he makes for them in in the final 13 verses there. This thing was grievous for Abraham. He's saying he he loves Ishmael. Don't, Don't think for a moment that Abraham didn't love Ishmael. He did. It's his son. As as crazy as the circumstances were, whereby he, he has this son brought into his life. He still loves his son. The word that's translated, they're interesting in, in verses 11 and 12 that says grievous means to actually shake violently. Abraham was shaken to the core that he had to cast his own son out. That's how serious sin is in the life of someone who is right before God. But God made some promises to him, to Ishmael, to Hagar. And even though some of the things, no doubt, that Hagar was feeling and Ishmael was feeling, and they had every reason to believe that there were some things that weren't right that were going on, God was still going to be faithful. And God did, in fact, make Ishmael a great nation. Do you need evidence of that? It's, It's the Arab world today. He becomes the father of of the Arab nations. 
This begins really in the northern regions of part of what we would call Saudi Arabia and part of what we would call Egypt today. But he founds these people that spread out through that region of the world. And God does bless them. And God does make them great. And they are to this day a force to be reckoned with. Uh, And yes, a vast majority of them still need the grace of God, the love of God to be poured out upon them because they believe in in this, this radical God that basically acts with capriciousness towards everyone. I'll just put your good deeds on one side of the scale and I'll put your bad deeds on the other and we'll see what happens. I'm telling you, if God actually did that, we're all dead. Amen? I'm dead. Maybe you're not. I am. I'll just tell you straight up, put my good deeds on one side, my bad deeds on the other. I'm in trouble. I am in trouble. Now, I would say that I probably do more good deeds now than I certainly have ever done in my entire life. I've got a lot of making up to do. I wouldn't want God sitting there kind of holding the balance scales going, "Eh, it's not looking good, Jeff. (laughs) It's kind of like on our fishing trips. You know, we put one fish on one side of a balance beam and another fish on the other side, and whichever fish is the heaviest, that's the winner. And every one of your cases, I can tell you which fish is winning. It's the sin fish. And praise God, God comes and grabs this big giant grace whale and hangs it on the other side. And so the grace whale flips your sin fish back into the ocean. And he doesn't remember it anymore. Amen? But make no mistake, he already judged all your sin on the cross. He made it right because of the blood of Jesus. That's why Jesus himself said earlier in our study in John in chapter 7, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. That's why one of the last words of the Lord in Revelation 22 is whoever will let him come and drink of the water freely. It's, It's the same picture of God saying, look, grace is available to anyone who wants it. Come and get it. Abraham shows us a recipe on how to move on from our messes. Anybody need that? Here's how to move on according to Abraham, these last couple of verses. How to move on from your messes. We find Abraham doing something we all need to do. He repented. So he could be reconciled to God. So look, I messed up. I want to make it right. You know, repent has become a dirty word in our society. It's like if you say it, it's it's almost an epithet. Now, repent is what we need to do when we have wronged against God or wronged another human being. We need to say, I'm sorry, and I'm going to do everything I can to make this right. Abraham did that. He says, look, I'm going to make a deal with you here's the sheep here's the ewes we're going to separate them i'm going to make a covenant with you i'm not going to fight with you i don't want you to fight with me i was wrong let's make this right he repented so that he could be reconciled i'll give you a little secret it's really tough to be reconciled to someone if you don't repent 
And you probably all had this experience. Let me explain it to you very simply. Someone comes to you and in a general sense they say, I'm sorry. And you look at them for what? And they usually say something like, well, anything I did that hurt you. That is not an apology and it is not repentance. That is I'm trying to get out of the circumstances that I have created by giving you a feigned apology, but I'm not naming my sin and I'm not taking responsibility for it either. That's not real repentance. Real repentance says, I did this and I'm sorry. And I don't want to do that again. And I'm letting you hold me accountable to what I'm saying right now by telling you what it is that I did. Repent to be reconciled. Abraham was working for God while he was busy with the things that he could do to be useful to God. An awful lot of Christians are kind of waiting for a management position. They're sitting around just kind of hoping that God's going to turn them into some super saint if they just wait long enough. Can I tell you that working's part of that process? Get busy doing what Abraham does here, which is he starts working on this relationship with Abimelech and with his family. He starts doing something that he does know to do. He's not waiting for God to reveal the entire plan. He takes absolute time out of his day to say, look, I know to do this. I'm going to do this. I may not have all the pieces, but this I know to do. And so he plants this tamarisk tree. He knows he's going to stay there. He's going to need food. This is a food source. The tamarisk produced some fruit. He said, I'm going to at least plant a tamarisk tree by this well so you'll have two things you're going to need. If you ever stop by my house again, you're going to have food. You're going to have water. He knew to do that. God doesn't have to reveal all of his plans to us all at once. Just go with what you know. A third thing. He began worshiping. Abraham was always at his best when he was worshiping the Lord. And so he returned to worshiping God. He said, I I didn't do all this right, but it didn't keep him out of church, so to speak. I've talked to an awful lot of miserable people that the first thing they do when they mess up is they stop praying. They stop reading. They stop going to church and they stop fellowshipping. Can I tell you that is exactly what the enemy of your soul wants for you. That is the devil's plan to get you believing that you can no longer worship God. Does God want you to repent? Absolutely. Does God want you to work? Absolutely. But he wants you to worship. He's still worthy of your worship whether you are worthy of worshiping him or not. He's still worthy of the worship you offer him. So worship him. Don't isolate yourself. We didn't see Abraham, well, you know, I'm just just a wretch, so I'm going to go off in the desert and die. You know, he doesn't do the Eeyore Christian thing. I'm going to go over here. No, he worships God. It says there in verse 33, the second part, there they worshiped the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. They called on him. And then finally, a fourth thing, and we'll close. Abraham waited. 
he stayed in the land of the Philistines. That was not an easy thing to do. His family still had, they they were going to have some issues from him staying. But he made a promise to God and he was going to keep it. And until God told him to move, he was staying. Can I tell you, you're better off staying where you already are than moving for the sake of moving. If God hasn't told you to move, stay put. Do what God calls you to do right where you're at. It's what Abraham does. It's not ideal. It's not perfect. But too often we're looking for the perfect thing and we make decisions based on the perfect thing. And so these four things. Repent, be reconciled. Work, worship, and wait. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless us. God, we are so blessed to see your grace poured out on on someone like Abraham, someone like Sarah and Hagar. And Lord, we have our Sarah and Hagar and Abraham and Isaac and Ishmael moments, each one of us do. And we thank you that if we will stop and repent and if we will keep working at what we do know to do and Lord we start to worship you and we wait on you we know ultimately you'll turn these things around by your grace and so we thank you we praise you and we ask all this in Jesus name amen